You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I don't know, parents, if you've had this experience where you're uh, wanting to watch a movie with your kids that you remember when you were a kid, and then you're watching the movie, and all of a sudden there's a part that comes up that you forgot about. And you're kind of like, oh, I forgot about that part, right? Or you maybe you're watching something with your parents or somebody, and you're just like, oh, I forgot about that part of the movie. Like, oh, this is a little awkward and comfortable. And uh, that's kind of where we're at in the book of Genesis right now. When you think about going through the book of Genesis, you think of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the happy parts. Uh, but we are hitting a part, a section here. Last week with circumcision, Justin did a great job. Today with the destruction of Sodom. Next week, Lot. Um, having children with his daughters, um, we hit at kind of that part of the movie, that part of the story that's not necessarily what we would pick to put on a Hallmark card or uh, that we would necessarily um, be excited to hear about. But uh, one of the things that we're committed to here at our church is the Bible, the scriptures being the word of God and that God works through his word. And uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. And so we come to this text knowing that it's a tricky one. It's one that um, uh, maybe doesn't sit well in our culture today, but we do believe that it is from God. We believe that it's good, and I am hoping to be able to show you that today. So as we walk through uh, some uncomfortable stuff in this text, I hope that you'll give it a chance, that you'll read it, and I think as we walk through it, you'll see uh, how, many, um, how many important things God has to teach us about stories like this. And the Bible doesn't pull any punches. It tells you the truth. It tells you the reality of what people are like, what God is like, and, uh, and how those things work themselves out in time. And so the, the, the title of our message today is The God of Wrath and Mercy in the Destruction of Sodom. That's really going to be our bottom line, is that God is a God both of wrath and of mercy. And we're going to see that play out in the story of the destruction of Sodom, both the prelude of what leads up to it and then what falls out of it, and, um, and also like how the rest of the Bible uh, looks back as an, on, the, on Sodom as a, as, a, as a test, as a lesson to learn from. So that's what we're going to do. The way I want to divide up our time together here is really in three parts. First, I want to just walk through the text. Usually we have someone read the whole text without any comment, and then I get up and preach, but I'm actually going to read it and make commentary on the way through it. I think that will help us understand the details of the text and make sure we're seeing it rightly. Uh, so we're going to do that for probably the first half of the message, is just walk through that. I think there will be a lot of insights that you'll glean. So it'll be helpful to have an open Bible in front of you, and we'll kind of walk through it together. Then secondly, I'm going to answer the big controversial and offensive question that this text ra- raises, and then close with four takeaways for us. Okay, So that's where we're going, just so you can sort of track with me um, as we navigate through the woods and the brush and the ups and downs of this text Now you kind of know what direction we're going and have kind of a compass for how we're going to go about that. Uh, In the story of Genesis, we've got Abraham and Sarai. Sarah now, God has changed their names from Abram and Sarai to Abraham, father of many, father of multitudes, and Sarah, which means princess. And uh, and they still haven't had a child yet. Um, They're now, uh, Abraham's pressing 100, Sarah's pressing 90, and uh, these visitors have come, these three messengers that we find out are God and two angels have come and visited them, and they come and really reaffirm the promise that they're going to have a child. And Abraham shows them great hospitality, welcomes them in, 
provides a lavish feast for them. Sarah laughs at the idea that she's going to have a child, and they have this dialogue. But that's not the only reason that God has appeared and brought these angels with him. He has a secondary purpose, not just to bring a promise to his people, but also to investigate and bring judgment on Sodom. Uh, So as we walk through the text, it's really kind of in three parts. In Genesis 18, 16 through 33, we see that Yahweh... God's personal covenant name is used all throughout this. So God is personally interacting in this story. Yahweh is the judge of all the earth. We're going to see that in the first part. And then in the middle part, um, we're going to have this investigation by these angels to just see how bad it really is in Sodom. Are they worthy of judgment? We're going to find out that Sodom deserves Yahweh's wrath. And then in the closing section, uh, chapter 19, verses 12 through 29, we're going to see Yahweh's severe wrath and insistent mercy both at the same time in the text all right so with that introduction start with me in genesis 18:16 we're going to look at this first section that yahweh is the judge of all the earth verse 16 then the men set out from there and they looked down towards sodom and abraham went with them to set them on their way the lord said shall i hide from abraham what i am about to do Seeing that Abraham has surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So they're coming up kind of the edge of the cliff, and they're looking out kind of down on Sodom and Gomorrah, and God is letting Abraham in on what he's about to do. I've come to investigate the situation at Sodom and bring judgment. And he's letting Abraham in on it. In verse 19, he says, For I have chosen him. And that could also be translated as, I have befriended him. And so, in this sense, Abraham, because he is a friend of God, as James 2.23 says, because he's God's friend, God's going to consult with Abraham and bring him in on it. The reason is, is that he wants Abraham to then interpret this story for the coming generations. He doesn't want people to just think that God just sort of obliterate cities just out of his own good pleasure, but that he has reasons for it. And even in his judgment, he has mercy. And he's wanting this to be a lesson that is learned down through the ages. So he's bringing Abraham into the reasons why he's going to do this severe thing so that Abraham can then interpret it down through the generations. And so he's bringing Abraham into his personal courtroom. It's like the judge is in recess to render his verdict, and he's bringing in Abraham to show him why he's doing this and how Abraham is supposed to interpret this for generations to come, how he's supposed to um, make sense of this for those that might misunderstand the character of God. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done uh, altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So God continues to explain to him that I am hearing outcry. I am hearing the evil and the sin that is being done in Sodom, and I'm hearing the outcry of the victims of their sin. This this is a a callback to Genesis chapter 4 where Cain killed Abel, and God says, Abel's blood is crying out to me. And he's saying, the victims of the sin of Sodom, He's crying out for vengeance. They want justice. And so I'm going to bring justice because I'm a God who hears the outcry of the sin. I'm I'm hearing 
the cries of the victims and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to put an end to the injustice and the sin that is happening there. And then he says in verse 21, I will go down to sea, which echoes back to Genesis chapter 11, when, uh, when the people are building the Tower of Babel and God comes down and investigates to see what these great people, it's, it's almost like Sodom is creating a tower of evil. They're creating a moral complex of evil as an offense, as an affront to God. If you go back to Genesis 13, 13, which is 25 years earlier, it tells us that Sodom was wicked and great sinners against the Lord. So God has been very patient for 25 years. They have been personally offending God, not just God in general, but Yahweh's God. So for 25 years, they have known about Abraham's God and they have been, they have been resisting him. They have been defaming him. They have been rebelling against him. So this is not some snap decision. This is, these are people who have been particularly wicked and offensive to God personally. They're personally doing that since chapter 13. And so God has been patient with them. And he's given them a witness of Abraham and Lot. And they have not turned. They've only gotten worse. And it's time. It's time to bring justice. It's time to bring an end to the victimization and the terrible actions that are happening in Sodom. So this outcry of blood, this I'm going to come down and witness it himself. And now I think what's happening here is as these two angels are going to go down and investigate, God is going to hold himself to the same standard he's going to give later. In Deuteronomy 19.15, when he gives the law to the people, here's what it says. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrongdoing in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So God would have every right to just in his own judgment, he's the all-seeing God, but he's actually conforming himself here to the standard of like, he's sending these two angels to go investigate so that the charges can be, um, can be established. And it can be something that humans can see that God, when he destroys Sodom, is not being unjust. And he's actually going to follow the, his own rules of it's more than one witness that is going to give testimony to the fact that this charge and this execution is just. All right, so verse 23. Then Abraham drew near. So it's just he and God looking down on Sodom and probably watching those two angels that look like men traversing down to do their investigative work to see just how evil Sodom really is. And Abram strikes up a conversation. Look at verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So Abraham has a fairly audacious challenge to God. Of God, you, he, and, and it's interesting, he doesn't appeal that the, right, that the wicked are not that bad. No, they deserve justice, that's obvious. Nobody's arguing that point, that they deserve that. But God, what if there's some righteous? You would not be a good God if you put to death the righteous along with the wicked. You, you, need, you need to differentiate here, God. And so he calls on God's good character of going, God, you wouldn't do the wrong thing, would you? And destroying the righteous with the wicked would be the wrong thing. Now, to this point, there's only been two people that have gotten the title of righteous so far. Noah 
in, in chapter 6 and Abraham in chapter 15. Noah is called a righteous man because he walks with God. Abraham is called a righteous man because he believes in God by faith. So it's, there's not been many righteous. And so when Abraham is being pretty generous here by saying, hey, maybe 50 righteous, there's been none righteous to this point. And only those that have been righteous have been those whom God has gifted righteousness, Noah and Abraham. But this is the plea. And it's fascinating that Abraham is, is appealing to God, not based on the wicked not deserving judgment, but the righteous and the wicked are all mixed in together, God. You wouldn't do that to your righteous people, would you? He offers this in humility. And verse 26, the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Just shows the mercy of God. For a righteous minority, I will stave off judgment for all. Abraham answered and said, behold. That is just amazing, right? God, God is willing for a righteous minority to withhold judgment on all. That's going to be huge. We're going to come back to that. Okay, verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, but I, but who am I but dust and ashes? So he understands his position as a human being versus a holy God, but he's going to appeal, he's going to intercede a little more. Suppose five of the riches, righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy it, even if I find 45. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose just 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went away. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, the a Abraham returned to his place. So that's sort of the setting here, is that will these two angels find ten righteous in the city? God will spare the whole thing. He will withhold his judgment for just a few who will walk with him, who will know him. Just a few. A very, very tiny minority. Now there's a question of like, why did Abraham stop there? Like, keep going, right? And there, we don't have a good answer. We're not sure. Maybe 10 was just a good family unit and he knew Lot was down there. So maybe like that's just, maybe he felt like he'd pressed his luck far enough, but certainly 10. But you get this conversation, which then shares that God is not flying off the handle. God is not a rageaholic. He is just, and he needs to execute justice, but he is so, he's so much more disposed towards mercy that even in the scales, he will weight the righteous more than the wicked to the point that he would save the entire city. He would let things continue. He would give people more time if there's a few righteous in their midst. So, 10. 10 is the number that's sort of looming over us. Will they find 10? So then we get to verses 1 through 11 of chapter 19, and we zoom in on the angels. They arrive in Sodom, and here's the deal. The investigation begins. 19 verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and he entered, they entered his house. 
and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So Lot responds like righteous Abraham, being hospitable to the Lord's messengers, bringing them in, and brings generous hospitality to them. And so Lot does the righteous thing. Lot is also aware of what his city is like. And if these men spend a night in the square, bad things are going to happen. So Lot is both being righteous here, and he knows the city that he's identified him with himself, that he's identified himself with, is terribly wicked. And so he's trying to protect these guys from what is inevitably going to come. It's not sure, we're not sure yet if Lot really knows if, uh, if these are angels yet, but I think there's some indication that he knows that maybe God's evaluation is being tied to what happens to these guys. Now, interestingly, Lot is one who sits in the gate, which means he's now one who has authority which tells you something about Lot. Because when he chose the finer land, the, the land that looked like Eden, he was calculating based not on the moral character of a place, but how prosperous it was. And so he chose a place that was more prosperous, although it was risky morally. And for a while, he's out in the fields, and then it says a little bit later that he's on the outskirts of the city. Now he's living full-fledged in the evil city. And now he's part of the government of it. He's now sitting in the gate as one who has authority. He's now somewhat complicit in this, all for the sake of prosperity. It has been a good place to live prosperity-wise, but now he has become numbed to the sin and is actually becoming part of the city's system. But there's still enough moral character in Lot that he wants to protect these innocent ones. They've come into a city that is known for not taking care of and... um, of, of, of visitors. So verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, now look at this. The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That's sexual, is what that is. And look at just how pervasive. This isn't just a few bad eggs. Like, watch out for that neighborhood. Keep an eye on this guy. Who's involved in this middle-of-the-night attempt at gang rape? Every man, old and young, boys, elderly, men, all of them are going, this is an opportunity to gratify ourselves sexually with these men. And all that stands between us is Lot and his front door. And they call, bring them out. We want them. There's no easy way to put this. This is organized, premeditated, universal, homosexual gang rape. All of them. This kind of sounds like Genesis 6 again, where it says the intent of every man's heart was always evil continually. This story has a parallel with Noah. Total evil and one righteous man, right? And Lot's pretty weak at that. So just just imagine this. The whole city... All the men of the city, all of them, are engaged in this premeditated, organized act. And they all want to be a part of it. So Lot comes to the door, verse 6. Lot went out to meet the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. He's going to play protector, which is the righteous thing to do. I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters whom have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So Lot confronts them. He condemns their behavior as wicked. 
which is a mark of righteousness, right? He is willing to stand up, but then he fails immediately, right? By despicably offering his own daughters. He feels like he's caught between a rock and a hard place here. He's got to choose the lesser of two evils in his mind. And he somehow in his mind rationalizes, you know what? I will sacrifice my daughters to these men. They'll satisfy themselves in order to protect these. This is ugly. I don't know that God ever wants us to choose evil, (laughs) even if it's the lesser of two evils. This tells you something about what Lot calls wicked. It's according to Lot. He calls it rightly as wicked. But you know what he's focusing on is not the rape part, because he's willing to offer his daughters as an alternative. It's the homosexual part. They don't just want sexual pleasure, which they could get from the daughters. They want unnatural homosexual sodomy. That's where sodomy comes from. So, Verse 9, and they, the guys in the house that Lot's protecting, the visitors, they've had enough. So here's what they do. They say, stand back, which means they didn't really need Lot's protection to begin with. Lot thought he was offering a nice compromise, and the, the men of the city were not having it. And the angels were like, okay, 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 we're done. We're done with this. We have seen enough. Our investigation is complete. So he says, stand back. And they said, this fellow came. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. The men of the city say stand back. And they said, this fellow has come to sojourn and he has become our judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. How dare you, Lot, call us out on our desires? How dare you, Lot? Who do you think you are to come and call what we want sin? what we identify with, who we are, what we want, how dare you? We're going to cancel you, probably kill you. We're going to do worse to you than we're going to do to them. So that's the situation that the men of the city are. Not just a few, all of them. This is the disposition of the human heart in Sodom. Verse 10, but the men reached their hands. Now the angels reached their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So the angels supernaturally blind them, and yet they still want to get into the house. They've been confronted in their sin by a messenger. They blew that off. Now they're beginning to receive some measure of punishment, and yet they're still groping at the door. They're still wanting to get in and satisfy their desires. This is the extent of the wickedness of the heart and mind is that they will not be restrained in their evil. And so, the question is, are there ten righteous? That was way an overestimation, wasn't it? Ironically, the two men rescue Lot, who was trying to rescue them, poorly, with bad ideas. But they rescue him. And even then, the attackers are still storming the door. Lot's lesser of two evils compromise was unnecessary and ungodly, unrighteous, and the angels will have none of it. So now you've got the verdict, right? Are they deserving of wrath? Well, yeah, by every standard, every human standard, no society would put up with what Sodom is promoting, putting out flyers and texts to, hey, come join the party. And so in verse 12 through 29, Yahweh's severe wrath and insistent mercy Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, and anyone in the city, bring them out of this place. This is the angel speaking. 
you have one night, you have the rest of this evening to evangelize. And anyone, this is amazing, anyone who will believe your message and flee will have all their sins forgiven. They'll be, if, they, if they trust in the provision of escape, then I will pardon them, regardless of what they've done before, right? This is an amazing act of mercy that he would give Lot some opportunity to persuade whoever he can to come out of the city. Verse 13, for we are about to destroy the place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Now just think about this a minute. His daughters were engaged to a couple other men. Those men live in the city. It says all men were at the door. What kind of men are his son-in-laws? They're the kind of men that participate in the very thing, right? And so they're, they're part of this. And Lot is going to them and saying, would you get out of the city with me? Which is a righteous thing to do. Lot believes that there really is a God who's going to bring judgment and he's warning people out of his love, even people that were trying to come against him. So Lot doesn't come out looking great, but Lot is showing marks of righteousness. He is hospitable. He is protect the innocent. He does call out sin while also sinning himself. And he's willing to go and warn people of coming judgment. And they laugh at him. They laugh at the idea that God would hold them accountable, that their sin is sin, and that God would actually, that God would actually take action. We'll believe it when we see it, Lot. And so... Lot's evangelism is ineffective. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. He lingered. He did believe that this was coming, but he just wanted to soak up Sodom for as long as he could. His heart, his possessions, his treasure was still in the city. And he just, one, one more minute, just give me a few more minutes in the city. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. It's almost like these angels, you know, one with each arm, like just grab them by the back of the shirt and take them out of the city. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and the Lord being merciful to him. Look who gets the credit here. The Lord being merciful to him. They brought him out and set him outside of the city. So he believes judgment is real and coming, but his heart still is tied with Sodom. And the angels take them out, and God gets the credit for being merciful. Verse 17, And as they, were brought, as they brought them out, no one, uh, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, my servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Listen to this, verse 20. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of where you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was Zoar. So, like Abraham, Lot intercedes. Would you please not destroy this? But unlike Abraham, he's not as interested in the people. He's interested in himself, right? But yet his intercession still saves the city. That city was intended to be destroyed, but by the intercession of a righteous man, the city was saved. 
which points kind of to the gospel. We've got this imperfect echo of the intercession of one man will save many. We see that again and again. Now, Lot is no great example, but he is called righteous twice in the New Testament. And I don't know why. Maybe it's these things. He does believe God, even if it's fumbling. Derek Kidner says, Lot is a righteous man without the pilgrim spirit. He loves the world so much. He's in, but he's just barely in. It's like in the New Testament, like those who will be saved as if through fire, just barely making it. Lot seems to be that kind of guy. But he makes a request while selfishly motivated for the sake of a city, and God answers the request to not bring judgment on that city because of the presence of a righteous man, because of a presence of one person in that city. So in some sense, Abraham's prayer is going to be answered. Will you save the city for just a few? Yes, Zoar, because Lot's there. But Sodom, I will remove the righteous, and then I'll bring judgment. The sun has risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, verse 23. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of, out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. This is more than just an accidental glance. It's like, no, that's where her heart is. Her heart turned back and goes, that's where my heart is. My heart is not with the rescue of the Lord and my husband. My heart is with Sodom. And so because her heart was with Sodom, she shared in the destruction of Sodom. She had every opportunity to escape, but yet her heart, in her heart of hearts, she could not look away. She could not detach herself from the city, the place, the sin that she most treasured. And she shared in the judgment. I don't know what pillar of salt means, but maybe she was just sort of incinerated with it, with the destruction of the city. Repeated warnings, and she just couldn't help but identify with Sodom. And so she suffered the same fate. And that's true of us. If we identify ourselves with what God condemns, we will receive the condemnation of what he condemns. What are we identifying ourselves with? Final paragraph. Here we go, verse 27. And Abraham, so now we're back to Abraham, went out early in the morning. He's anticipating, has his intercession for Sodom been sufficient? When he stood before the Lord and he looked out down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like smoke of the furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So you get this little summary statement that really the story is ultimately about the promise given to Abraham. This, is, this side story is really about Abraham and how God is going to continue to bless people through Abraham. Abraham's starting to get his calling in that now he's interceding for the wicked. He's seeking to be a blessing to the wicked. But it's not like he ultimately is the judge. God's the judge, and he will do what is right. Turns out, God did not find ten righteous in Sodom. And so therefore, it was rightly and justly destroyed. And, and at the same time, God did not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He removed them. He delivered the righteous and actually spared another city. So Abraham didn't get the answer to the prayer that he wanted, but God did answer his prayer to deliver some people for the sake of the righteous. Both Yahweh's severe wrath and his insistent mercy mark the story. Did God, the judge of the whole world, do right? The text would say yes. He did do right. That's a sobering thing. We're talking about real people here, right? This is a sobering reality, but this, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. He condemned the wicked, and he saved the righteous in the same act. 
So, very quickly, let's try to make sense of this. Hopefully that walkthrough was helpful. One big controversial question. What was the sin of Sodom? We live uh, in a time, and there's a lot of theologians that are trying to find a way to reinterpret the Sodom story and say that it really wasn't homosexuality that God was condemning in Sodom. And so they've tried to find different ways to explain this. So I'm just going to go right at it and just explain what the Bible says. I'm just going to show you the verses where the Bible interprets what this story means. So the sin of Sodom is, number one, sexual immorality. Homosexuality is clearly condemned in the Old Testament, the New Testament, Leviticus 16 and 18, and in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Romans 1. And Jesus in Matthew 19 gives a comprehensive sexual ethic when he tells them, when he's asked about divorce, he says, have you not read about the one who created them from the beginning, created them male and female, which tells us about gender assignment, tells us about our biology. It tells us that God is the one who assigns gender and sexuality and that he created it to operate. And so any perversions of that, anything within the LGBTQIA spectrum would be out of bounds, as well as a whole lot of other things like adultery, promiscuity, pornography. So it's not just picking on this one thing. It's that God has a particular aim for our gender and our sexuality, and anything outside of that is outside of his will and under his wrath. Jude 1.6 says this, or Jude 1.7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there's just no escaping that. There's no way to reinterpret the Bible to all of a sudden get for God to give approval to those things. That doesn't mean we have to be mean or jerks about it, but we can't reinterpret the Bible. The Bible is clear that this is what God says, and it's for our good, and it does bring about his judgment. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of Christians stop there. The Bible has more to say that this is not the only sin that Sodom committed. There's also the sin of social injustice. Inhospitable and indifferent to those who are refugees, those who are in need, those who are poor, those who have experienced the effects of sin, either physically or spiritually, a lack of hospitality. Now, I, this is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, 49 says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and needy. So there's more than one kind of sodomy here. The wrath that God poured out on Sodom wasn't just for sexual immorality. It was they were indifferent to the needs around them. So while we need to be clear about the Bible, we also need to realize that while we're wanting to maybe sometimes point, point at other people's sins, we also go, wait a minute, Sodom was destroyed for more than one sin. And inhospitality, social injustice was just as big of a deal to God their treatment of these foreigners that were coming into their city was part of the deal too. Does that make sense? And ultimately, we could wrap all, neither of those actually is the ultimate sin. The ultimate sin is that they, are unre, they have unrepentant unbelief. Again and again, they're warned to turn from their sin, to detach from their sin, and they continue to laugh at Lot. How dare you judge us? 
They're unwilling to repent and believe. If they had repented and believed, all of their injustice, all of their sexual immorality would have been forgiven. What really holds them back, what really keeps them under judgment is unrepentant unbelief. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 11. So I'm not making this up. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You have committed a greater sin than Sodom, which is to see the Messiah and reject him. Unrepentant unbelief is the worst of sins. So four takeaways. So really the sin of Sodom is really kind of three things. And the supreme thing being is they're unwilling to bow the knee to the king. They're unwilling to take the escape route. They're, they're unrepentant unbelief. And that can be any number of sins that we struggle with. If we're unrepentant and unbelieving, then we have it worse than Sodom in terms of God's judgment. Four quick takeaways. We're almost done. Number one, what are we supposed to do with this story? <laughs> All of your parents are like, I got things to talk to my kids about now. Your kids are sharp. God is a just judge and a merciful savior at the same time. Think of the cross for a moment. Is the cross of Jesus Christ an act of judgment or an act of mercy? The answer is yes. God always saves through judgment. Noah and the ark, he saves them through judgment. He brings the Israelites out of Egypt, delivering them through judgment. Again and again, God delivers his people through the crucifixion of his son. God is pleased and right to be both the just and the justifier of those who have faith in him, to both punish sin and save his people in the same act. Brings him glory to do that. Second Peter says this, this is an interpretation of both the Noah story and the Sodom and Gomorrah story, kind of overlaid on top of each other. So, for, so Peter tells us how to see this story. He says, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, and if, right, if Lot can make the, the list as righteous, literally anyone can, right? Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw that he saw and heard. And if this is true, if all of these test cases in the Old Testament are true, then we can know this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the, righteous under, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God has the ability to do both justly and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Isn't that amazing? That's the interpretation of the Sodom and Gomorrah story, is this is meant to be a test case of like, we have a God we shouldn't mess with, and he's able to do both, both do justice and mercy together, rightly. Second takeaway is that there are two categories of people throughout the Bible. There's just two. There is wicked and there is righteous. There's no middle ground. There's no okay people. 
There's no, ah, not bad people. It's there is wicked and there is righteous. Throughout the Bible, those are the only two categories before God, the righteous and the wicked. The wicked identify themselves with sin, mocking the coming judgment, and lack hospitality. The righteous are marked by identifying themselves with God, trusting in his mercy, and a hospitality and a concern for others, even their enemies. And the Bible tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. God has to gift the righteousness that then brings about his blessing. There's no one righteous. You look at Noah. Noah walked with God and God declared him righteous. Abraham believed God. God credited it to him as righteousness. None of us falls in the righteous category in and of ourselves. We have to be gifted to us by Christ, by faith in Christ. But then once we possess that, we really are truly righteous in his sight, permanently, completely, perfectly righteous in his sight. And that righteousness produces something. It produces that we identify ourselves with God. We trust in his mercy and we have a hospitality and a concern for even our enemies. You see that in Abraham and Lot, right? They have a concern for even their enemies. Abraham doesn't want to see the city destroyed. And so he intercedes. And so we must be. Psalm 1, 5, and 6 says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So Psalm 1 picks up on this same idea that there are two categories of people with two destinies, eternal judgment or eternal mercy. Number three, this is amazing. The presence, witness, and intercession of a righteous minority saves many. Did you notice that? That was at the heart of the interchange between Abraham and God, was how many righteous does it take for you to save the whole thing? And it doesn't take very many. Unfortunately for Sodom, it wasn't enough in God's good judgment. But this should tell us something, that your presence, your witness, your prayer in your workplace, in your family is making a difference. It is buying time for people. The, the fact that you are living a righteous life where you are is having an effect whether you're seeing it or not. Matthew tells us that, well, Jesus says this in Matthew 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And that's the idea of salt preserving meat that's decaying. You can slow it down. Your presence buys time because, because God is honoring you. He is giving those who are lost around you more time. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And I think that's part of the problem with Lot. Lot was still genuinely salt, but he'd lost his saltiness. He'd become part of it. And therefore, it wasn't persuasive. Now, there's a whole lot of other things going on, but I think maybe, maybe to some extent, that might be true. Matthew 10 Jesus does this as he commissions his disciples to go out and bear witness to him. And I think this would be true for us. He says, as you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to it. And if anyone will not listen to you or receive your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So you don't need to try to avenge yourself. You don't need to try to defend yourself. The fact that they have rejected you and the message that you bring is something God will take care of himself. Make sense? And then lastly, number four, a global reckoning like this one is coming and we are called to respond. So friends, we're all living in Sodom in that sense. Is that God has declared an expiration date on this world. 
and the wicked will be disposed of in the cosmic trash can called hell. Everything tainted and identifying with sin. He will dispose of it. He will be rid of it, and he will make a new heavens and a new earth. And unless we're cleansed of our sins through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be cast out with it. This is exactly what is said in Luke 17. Jesus himself says this. Likewise, just in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. This is the same things we do, right? They're just doing ordinary life things, not realizing that the time is almost over. They're like Lot's son-in-law, sort of scoffing at the idea that a judgment is coming. Verse 29, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. That's Jesus' interpretation of this story. And we need to take that to heart. So I know that this is an edgy sermon. I know that this doesn't play well. I know that this maybe offends you. It's the Bible. I don't, I'm not in charge of it. I don't get to reinterpret it. I didn't write it. But I believe God did, and I, he did this with a strategic purpose, and maybe even one of that purposes is for you to come to the reality that you don't have much time, and your sin, your unrepentance, your lack of belief does bring you under the judgment. But there is a rescue. God has sent a messenger. God has sent his son to live a perfect life on your behalf, to die on the cross, to take your Sodom, to take your fireballs, the judgment that you deserve, and he rose again. And if you'll cling to him, he will, like those angels, just grab you by and take you to glory, to salvation, to deliverance. And it doesn't matter what you've done. If Lot can do the horrible things that he has done and still be called righteous, then certainly you, whatever you've done, if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be declared righteous, delivered from wrath, and counted among the righteous and delivered from judgment. Let's just take a moment and just reflect on that. And you do business with God wherever you're at. Wherever you're at in your journey with God, just take a moment and reflect. And take this to heart. Remember Lot's wife. Remember the story of Lot. Do business with God now because you don't know if you have any more time. Oh God, you have put this story in your word and I have questions. <laughs> uh, it's not, if I was just to pick a passage to preach at random, this would not be it. Lord, it lands heavy on us. It seems like you think you're God and that you get to decide what is right and what is true. And Lord, that in some ways is hard on us in our flesh because we want to determine what is right and good and where the lines are. We thank you, God, that you've opened up your heart to Abraham and we have this written down to understand that you are not flippant about your wrath. You don't fly off the handle and just obliterate people because you take great pleasure in that, but yet you hear the outcry of those who've been victimized and you will make it right. Lord, we thank you that you're the one that gets to do that. I would get it wrong. I think I'm so right, but I don't know what you know. 
and I don't have the goodness that you have, and I don't have the holiness that you have, and so I trust you. And Lord, I pray for my friends here that they would see both the severity and the kindness of God in this passage and that they would realize that they're in one of two categories today, facing one of two internal realities from you. And I pray, God, that they would not be hard-hearted like the Sodomites, but they would hear the warnings of their own sin, whether it's these sins or other sins, they would hear the warnings of those sins and that they would flee to the good, kind, merciful God who longs to save them, who has given them time. So Lord, I pray that whatever work you're doing in individuals' hearts, they would respond to it and not resist it. That 100% of the people in here would walk out of here having been rescued from the wrath to come and counted among the righteous. We thank you that you are this kind of God and we trust you. We trust your word. We know this is good for us to hear. And so we receive it by faith in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.